Episode 9 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time communicating directly with the team in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform and not suggest. In this week's episode, we're going to focus on the most technical initial coin offering that we have thus far considered. And as for myself, this is a refreshing change. Now, unless this is your first ICO 41 podcast, you know that in this podcast, we try to swing between the business use of blockchain and the underlying technology behind it. And I suppose that this is probably a reflection of my tendency to stand between the middle of these two worlds, business and technology, for so many years. But when we spend a little bit too much time on the business side of things, we may tend to get caught up on the excitement and the promise of what blockchain can do. And what I mean by that is the fundamental concepts of distributing the workload across many nodes, removing that giant centralized power structure, whatever it is, bank or otherwise, to allow for peer-to-peer transactions, and the concept of the immutable ledger that speaks the truth about what happened in the past, all these things that we talk about and have talked about in this show. Well, in the investigation of this very technical and interesting project this week, we received a bit of a wake-up call. Maybe you might say a reality check. What I mean by this is that as we dive into the promise of the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum as platforms to provide blockchain technology, we run into some uncomfortable truths And the people behind the project that we're analyzing this week are outspoken and quite articulate about some of these limitations. Now, I've been thinking about some of these things in the back of my mind for a few months now as I've been producing and researching these podcasts. And I think now's the time to sort of roll them out and look at them one by one. So before we dive into the specific upcoming token sale that we're going to discuss this week, I want to do that now. First, let's, let's take a look at Ethereum. Now, as we know from this podcast, it's actually Ethereum, in fact, with its, this rich set of functionality that allows the deployment of smart contracts and the ability to write sophisticated distributed applications or dApps that run on its platform that has made possible the vast majority of the ICOs that have swept the market over the last year or two. But the reality is that the inclusion of all this functionality on the Ethereum blockchain has caused the blockchain to grow to massive amounts. At the moment, it's 330 gigabytes at the time of this podcast. 
So what that means is that if you want to run a node of Ethereum with all of the historical transactions from the very first block, known as the Genesis block, you are required to download and maintain a starting point of 330 gigabytes. Now, it's possible to do a lot with what's known as the lightweight client, which comes in at around 30, 35, 40 gigs. But nevertheless, even this, it's a significant barrier to widespread adoption. Secondly, let's talk about transaction speed and capacity on public blockchains. I'm talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum for the moment. It's just frankly abysmal. When you compare that to traditional client-server implementations, let's just take purely financial data, like just simple transactions. There's not a lot of data. What is it? It's the identifiers, the recipient, the sender, their identifications, such as credit card number or whatever. In the case of blockchain, it's a public key. That's like 64 characters. When it basically happened and how much of it was transferred, that's really a financial transaction. Okay. So Visa reported in 2016 that their average transactional load was about 1,600 transactions a second. PayPal themselves apparently handled around 6 billion transactions in 2016. So on average, that's about 190, 394 transactions per second, 24, 7, 365. Ethereum? Well, we're lucky if it can manage 20 transactions a second. Bitcoin, down to about four, five transactions per second. Needless to say, this is a serious impediment to widespread adoption. And then we should talk about the fees. In the beginning, Bitcoin held the promise of being able to send microtransactions. You're in a coffee shop and you want to buy a cup of coffee. Well, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out not that long ago, nobody's going to be buying any coffee anytime soon with Bitcoin when the average transaction fee is apparently between 4 and $7 per transaction at a minimum. This pretty much makes it impossible to use for things like microtransactions or cups of coffee. In fact, actually, the transaction price for Bitcoin has risen approximately 1,800% over the last two years. Now, there was a uh, protocol change called Segregated Witness not long ago that brought it down a few dollars, but nevertheless, uh, it's, it's pretty much getting to the point where it, it's not a great advantage over other certain more traditional payment systems in some cases. Now, Ethereum still has relatively low fees. But there was an article on Hacker Noon just last August that detailed the costs of a complicated Ethereum smart contract. And that's just about approaching the cost of a Bitcoin transaction. And as you program more and more and complex transactions on the Ethereum platform, you're going to see prices rise because there's a lot of steps in these transactions, all of which are billable, so to speak. So... What this means, these concepts, basically, the massive and widespread migration of current technology to these public blockchains as we know them 
like Ethereum and Bitcoin is really probably not going to happen. At least not the way that so many of these ICOs and blockchain evangelists promise. Where does that leave us? Well, it most likely means that a large amount of the deployment of blockchain technology, which again is a brilliant, spectacular, and fantastic thing with many benefits, it's probably mainly going to happen privately. Because many of the issues that are listed that we just talked about are at least mitigated, if not completely solved, by private blockchains. And so it's with all of this in mind and with clear eyes as to the issues that we just raised that we look this week at the ICO, which is... Lambdon. First, let's look at the concept. Lambdon is in the process of constructing a framework that allows for the rapid development of blockchain technologies. And then they take it a step further by offering a distributed platform for routing transactions, communications between various different private and public blockchains. So the team on this project are very aware of the limitations that we've discussed earlier. And in fact, many of them appear in their white paper. And they also add to those things the fact that deploying or migrating your current infrastructure to the blockchain is not always an easy proposition. Now, it's true. It might be a relatively trivial exercise to get an Ethereum private blockchain up and running, but it's an entirely different proposition to build an entire ecosystem on top of that blockchain that you just got running. Just take a simple example. Simple things that we now take for granted, like the domain name system, you've probably heard of DNS, which is the ability for us to type in our browser something like lambden.io, which is then instantly translated to an IP address that actually allows us to physically reach that site. Well, that type of service is pretty much non-existent for blockchains that need to speak with each other. And even if they can speak to each other, it's very difficult to manage what we might call cross-chain payments, financial transactions, payments between nodes operating on two different separate, sometimes private, sometimes public blockchains. Also, there's an important part of modern software development. We call it DevOps, which is short for development and operations. What this actually refers to is the relationship between system administrators and developers, for the most part. Now, if you don't have a technical background, you might not even really know that there was a difference between these two groups, but there absolutely is. And traditionally, they would need to work together closely in order to get software released and functional because you've got on the IT side, the people who are managing the hardware and the systems and the operating systems, and you've got the developers who are writing software applications so as to run on those machines. So DevOps was sort of born. And in a more traditional software development world, you've got entire platforms devoted to this relationship 
I think one of the best known examples is Docker. This is a software that allows you to manage and launch your application from what is known as a container. And that container is portable between underlying operating systems. This is a really important necessity nowadays because the software applications need to be written quickly. They need to be deployed on a variety of different systems and they need to be manageable because they're complicated. Uh, they're, they're not just web pages. I mean, these are, these are database applications. They're complicated, uh, well-written, robust applications, and they need a system of management. Even more, the Lambdan team points out that there's actually some issues in finding people who know how to build stuff on the blockchain, like fully functional, robust, powerful applications that we were just talking about. According to an article posted last year on Bitcoin Magazine, there were something like 5,000 available developers who had extensive experience in writing software for the blockchain, maybe 20,000 that had dabbled with it a little bit. Now compare this with about 9 million developers working with Java in 2016, or 6 million C-sharp developers, and untold millions of JavaScript developers. And like most development environments in the very early stages, there's no supporting development platform to make the deployment of blockchain applications a simple matter. There's no DevOps. Lambdan intends to change that by providing a set of tools to allow the rapid deployment of blockchains, as well as the simple implementation of smart contracts on those various blockchains, and finally, the ability for separate blockchains to talk to each other easily. That's the fundamental premise of what this project is about. Let's have a look at the company and the team. The company is run by people in Switzerland and Northern California in the Bay Area. The company was actually registered in California in February of 2017, to give you a little history. According to LinkedIn, there's about nine employees. Uh, the profiles on LinkedIn show a uh, uh, very talented group of technologists and some business people. Uh, this particular company is very strong in software development. Most of the team members have active GitHub profiles, and you can look at software repositories for some of them that go back years. There's little question that, in my mind, that this team can pull off what they plan to deliver, particularly because you can visit those repositories, download the software, mainly written in Python, that's functional. The team has recently released a 15-minute video that demonstrates the use of some of the tools that we're going to talk about when we discuss the white paper. The documentation for some of these tools is very well done. I was able to follow a document and some of their code that allowed me to get four nodes running on two private Ethereum blockchains using a virtual Linux machine in less than half an hour. Let's talk about the white paper. The first thing that I noticed about the white paper is that it does a great job of articulating the limitations of the public blockchain environment, especially from the point of view of someone who actually needs to commercially viably produce software in a reasonable amount of time. Now, all the problems that we discussed previously are very well articulated. It was kind of my wake-up call, actually, to read it in a way, because it, it very well crystallized and articulated the things that I've been thinking about over the last few months as I've been investigating these ICOs. And then the white paper goes on 
to explain the three products or modules, if you will, that Lambdin is offering to at least mitigate some of the most egregious of these issues for the blockchain. First, there's a product called Saffron, which allows for the very rapid deployment of operational blockchains. With just a few environmental variables and some, some simple commands, multiple nodes on multiple chains on different networks can be up and running within literally minutes. Next, there's something called Flora. Now that's a package manager. Now, if you have any experience with Linux, you're familiar with applications like apt-get or yum, which allows you with a single command to install, uninstall, and update entire software packages. For Python developers, there's something called pip. Same kind of thing. Flora allows this sort of thing, but with smart contracts. And it allows the distribution of those packages across multiple participants in the Lambda system. Now, an interesting note here is that while the original plan was to use the Interplanetary File System, or IPFS as we know it, for data storage, they settled upon Apache Cassandra. Since this was enterprise tested and apparently more scalable, IPFS is as was pointed out in some documentation that came after the white paper, still more or less in the alpha stage of development. The main key to what Flora is doing is what Landman calls templated solidity, which is spelled TESOL, pronounced TESOL. And these templates provide the ability to reuse common contracts, smart contracts, and then deploy those contracts with some simple parameters that are defined when they're compiled. And this also allows for a much more dynamic definition of various data structures. It makes it all much, much simpler. And finally, the third item is something called Clove. Now this functions as a router that facilitates the ability for blockchains, both private and public, to talk to each other. And by talk to each other, we're mainly talking about payment transactions, which actually currently is quite difficult. The router provides a public ledger that mainly routes between two private chains. It itself won't suffer from blockchain bloat like we talked about earlier. There won't be fees for the routing, and nor will it need to be run by difficult hashing functions. Instead, this lightweight router called Clove is designed to be powered by the private chains that it serves. The lightweight nature of this router has about the same demands, the white paper says, as a typical web server, which is a lot less than would be demanded in terms of computing if it were a more traditional blockchain mining node. Now, the white paper goes on to explain at a high level the steps that you, as a typical IT manager or a team of developers, would perform in order to actually make this entire ecosystem work. It starts out with Saffron to get your blockchains up and running, followed by deploying some ERC-20 tokens, for example, or maybe some smart contracts using Flora. And then you would use Clove to hook up your private chain with other private chains or perhaps the public blockchain for seamless interchain transactions. And the last thing that the paper does is introduce the token. It's called Lambda Tau or just Tau, T-A-U. Now this is a digital asset that's designed to be completely native to Lambda. And 
most importantly, agnostic to all chains. So the token will serve as an intermediate utilitarian entry point for developers to begin transferring assets within the Lambda system. Also, it presents an easy way to transfer payments from one chain to another through the exchange with the Lambda Tau token. Now, the key thing about this white paper is that it's geared toward developers and IT professionals as well that have probably attempted to deploy private blockchains, probably attempted to start writing some smart contracts, getting them compiled, getting them working on the chain, and probably who have run against the difficulty inherent in getting something as simple as two chains to communicate with each other, like attempting to make cross-chain transactions, for instance, or maybe spending a, a good deal of time uh, piecing together code and libraries snatched from the web or maybe even written from scratch. One of the significant things that is provided, not, not necessarily in the white paper, but in, in a vision document that I found that was related to the white paper, is sort of a high-level analysis of other competing platforms that are out there, other choices. Now, they mentioned, for instance, Hyperledger. We've talked about Hyperledger in the past on this show. And they point out that the deployment using that platform requires some pretty advanced networking knowledge. It's relatively complex to get this thing going. It takes months to create a working blockchain environment using that platform. They also point out that the interoperability of Hyperledger is confined to, you guessed it, other chains using Hyperledger. So another one was Tendermint which is another one that not only requires expert networking experience, but you also have to have a high degree of knowledge in consensus algorithms. And when it comes to interoperability, zero. So in the table in the document, the Lambda platform stood out as the only project really that allowed truly rapid deployment in a matter of days with universal interoperability thanks to the likes of something like Clove. And what I want to point out is that, yeah, there's definitely other projects out there that seek to solve various aspects of the three things that Lambda is putting together. But Lambda is the only project that I know about that's taking those three things, those three problems, and placing it in one project, in one ecosystem, all available through some common set of commands. As far as I can tell, this platform represents the first major creation of an entire ecosystem that's written by and for developers who need to deploy every aspect of the blockchain rapidly and efficiently. Let's talk about the roadmap. The roadmap itself has about a total of a one-year timeline, and that's after the token sale, which is probably going to be over the end of December. At the end of that year, all the software will be deployed in a stable version 1 release, and the protocol specification will be completely documented. Let's take a step back a little bit to the present time. Let's say about a month after the Lambda Tau tokens are distributed, right around December, they expect to have a rigorous testing of all three tools working together with some Q&A testing, and alpha releases of all three products by the end of that month. So we might be looking at maybe February. One of the significant milestones in this particular roadmap is an enterprise case study, which is planned in Q1 of 2018. 
And I think that's a good thing. You don't see that very often. Uh, what, what it shows me, and this is actually borne out by some chatting that I had with the CEO on Discord, is that this is a team that comes from sort of a commercial, uh, not exactly what you call uh, academic uh, development environments where, where commercially viable products needed to actually be created. And I like the fact that they've sort of stitched that into the white paper uh, because you don't see that a tremendous amount. I mean, an enterprise case study is a serious thing where it's going to take a company or more than one, several companies that's actually going to test or user acceptance testing at the enterprise level, uh, which which will then bear out and really seriously test the viability of this system. Now, a month after that, which sounds to me like about spring of 2018, they hope to have a front-end interface. And a front-end interface is going to be useful. In the, in, in the experience that I had with the tools that I downloaded and also in the 15-minute uh, video that I saw, uh, it's all command line. And if you're familiar with command line and you're comfortable with command line, I, I happen to be having been... A Linux manager for quite a while. I, I'm fine with it, but I totally understand, and I think that they have, they're right on track with providing a front-end uh, web-based interface to be able to um, work with these tools in a way that many people expect nowadays. By the summer of 2018, the intent is to have the Lambda and Tau token deployed on a high-throughput blockchain. Uh, which is kind of interesting. I, I, I had an interesting conversation. Part of the conversation that I had uh, on Discord with the CEO uh, was about that fact is that, you know, private blockchains, they, they don't need to have a great deal of difficulty. You know, they, they can support more rapid transactions. They can support any size block. Uh, the idea is that they can design their blockchains to be high throughput. And I think that's interesting that they're going to, you know, sort of demonstrate that by the summer of 2018, and then they're going to have something called a Lambda and Tau migration event, which would be interesting. Let's talk about the token sale itself. Uh, name of the token, Lambda and Tau, that's L-A-M-D-E-N-T-A-U, or just Tau, T-A-U. In order to participate, you have to register, and that's just a simple matter of filling out a form at Lambda.io and providing an Ethereum address that you control, not one from an exchange, course, we know this from other ICOs. The pre-sale is going on right now, and it ends on November 1st, so in a couple days. During the pre-sale, for each Ether contributed, the contributor will get 3,196.81 Tau, which at a $300 per Ether price comes out to about $0.09 cents per Tau. During the pre-sale, there's an uncapped individual contribution. There is a $5 million hard cap during this pre-sale, but there's no cap on an individual contribution. Prior to the pre-sale, the team announced that it had already received $150,000 in seed investment. Now, the token sale itself launches in mid-November. The exact date hasn't been announced yet. And during that time, the United States dollar and Ether price will be determined about 24 hours before the launch. We've seen this many times. Of course, it's because of the fluctuating price of Ether. And the price of Ether to Tau, though, is fixed now, and that is 1,966.1 Tau to 1 Ether. 
Now, if you think about those numbers that we just threw out there, uh, that provides some pretty good incentive to participate in the pre-sale. So I'm happy that I'm going to get this uh, this ICO uh, analysis out uh, before the end of the pre-sale. Uh, there is a $45 million USD hard cap for that sale, and there will be individual contribution caps. Uh, that'll be determined when they know how many registrants there are. That's why if you register, then they'll be able to count the number of registrants, and they'll be able to identify that sort of contribution cap. Uh, of course, that's to maintain a somewhat egalitarian distribution of tokens. There is an interesting uh, formula to determine that individual cap. You can check it out uh, at the at lambda.io. It's it's a fairly dynamic um, formula that could potentially change a little bit over time. It's, it's interesting. I like the way that they did it. The maximum number of tokens that'll be generated are actually 500 million, but any unsold tokens after the sale uh, is complete will be burned. Now let's talk briefly about SEC compliance. You know, there really isn't too much to say about this here. Uh, first of all, there's zero hint of any kind of speculative approach to the coin. Uh, and there's no hint or there's no nothing in the white paper, nothing in any of the announcements, nothing in any of the press releases that point anywhere near the direction of a security. Uh, the use of the token is entirely utilitarian as far as I can tell. In fact, the entire platform is pretty much utilitarian. It's pretty much made for developers, but it's going to help. It's going to help deploy business uh, with their blockchains, but entirely utilitarian from my, in my perspective. Um, let's talk about the reaction from the community. Uh, the team issued a couple of press releases. Uh, they've got a, a nice explainer video. They've got a YouTube video I mentioned earlier that with a, the title kind of speaks for itself. Private Ethereum Blockchain in 10 Minutes. <laughs> you can just look for that on YouTube and find it instantly. Uh, it's essentially a demonstration of Saffron and Flora, where they uh, register some Flora users first. They upload a smart contract, generate an ERC-20 token, and they use Saffron to initialize the token. And then they walk through sort of a wizard-style process that takes in a few parameters to, to instantly create the chain. And then they use Flora as a package manager, and they're able to deploy a sort of a templated contract uh, with a single command, a couple of parameters. Now, the beauty of this, and you'll see it if you do watch uh, the, the video, is that you don't have to be a developer to do any of this. A simple Linux experience system administrator could do it in, in, in minutes. Uh, there are these templates that provide you with the ability to make just a few basic decisions about the contract or about whatever the template is about, and then deploy it pretty much instantly. Now, if you're a developer or an IT professional and you're familiar at all with what it actually takes to get all of this running without this kind of assistance, I, I think you'll, you'll see the uh, value in this uh, pretty quickly. If you're not a developer, I'm just going to ask you to take my word for it that it saves a lot of time. Uh, and it makes the entire premise of blockchain and smart contract deployment a heck of a lot more palatable for companies or IT professionals who are considering using this technology. Now, on Reddit and Bitcoin talk, there's not a lot of reaction from the community. There is no bounty, and, and it's kind of interesting. If you ever get a chance 
to head over. I, t- I talk about Bitcoin Talk uh, a lot on this show. If you ever get a chance to go over to BitcoinTalk.org and look at some of the ICO announcements and, and then look at sort of the conversation that comes after these announcements, uh, you'll, you'll notice that there's, there's probably about 100 comments about bounties or questions or whatever for every serious question or comment about the project itself. So this particular project, in not having a bounty at this juncture, is, is sort of sidestepping a lot of that noise, you know? Uh, one thing about the community that I will say and, and noticed uh, is that the team has a very open policy. Uh, you can tell just from their history and also from their attitudes and their communication that they're, they're clearly committed open source software developers. So they're welcoming, they're inviting community involvement in the code itself. And as I mentioned, of course, they're very active on GitHub. In fact, I'll just tell you that one of my favorite parts of putting this podcast together is the, the direct interaction that I get with the people who are running some of these token sales. And I just find them to be very interesting, very energetic, and very bright people. There's no exception here. I had a really great chat with Stuart, the CEO on Discord, and he was very willing and enthusiastic in sharing his findings, his research, his opinions about a wide range of blockchain-related topics. And I always learn something from these sort of exchanges that I have with the people who are running these uh, token sales. And in this case, I I received some, I thought, very fascinating alternatives to uh, proof of work, uh, which I I am interested in that kind of, I'm very interested in looking at something a little different than proof of work. We'll talk about that in in a minute. It's, it's, uh, It's definitely something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, it happens to be, in my opinion, one of the current constraints of the public blockchain. Um, in fact, actually, Stuart, the CEO of Lambden, uh, wrote uh, what I would consider a very well-written blog post about proof of work. And uh, he showed some pretty scary statistics. Basically, it's just a massive waste of resources. Now, granted, it, it was, when it came out, a genius. And it was, it was very interesting to be able to sort of incentivize miners to do the right thing uh, through their own human natural tendency toward greed. I mean, it was definitely well done, no question about it. Uh, but as he points out in this, in this blog post, at this juncture, it really needs to be put to better use. Like, let's just say, for instance, folding proteins or searching methods of hydrogen production or climate analysis or, or maybe searching for extraterrestrial life and about actually 65 other projects that could actually use that kind of public computing power. In fact, I'll go on to say, if you're interested in contributing this way with your computer or computers, and maybe you don't feel like just mining coins or mining altcoins or whatever you could be doing when you're sleeping, I would just go to Google and type in list of distributed computing projects, and then visit Wikipedia and look at those 60 or 70 projects that really could use uh, some, some great help. And someday, it would be lovely to see the massive amount of hashing power that's going on right now on both the Ethereum and the Bitcoin blockchain put to those kind of uses. Okay, okay, I'm going to get off the soapbox now, go back to our analysis. Um, Let's talk about business viability. So 
in terms of business viability, I think there's little doubt that there's a strong use case for what it is that Lambda is building. And one of the reasons why we're still considering, if you can imagine, we're still considering the blockchain in an infancy stage. And it's been almost nine years after Bitcoin's Genesis block. We're only a few months away for nine-year anniversary of Bitcoin's Genesis block. And I believe that it's a lack of... A part of it is a lack of simple tools to deploy the technology. Granted, there's some other things that happen, you know, with Silk Road and this and that and people not understanding it and whatever. But the point is, is that a lack of these kinds of tools to deploy this technology definitely had something to do with that. I, I actually happen to agree with the team, or at least what is expressed in the white paper, this, this concept that if there's going to be a distributed application sort of explosion, it's probably not going to be on the public blockchain. It's probably going to be on what will eventually be thousands or hundreds anyway of private blockchains that all have to easily talk to each other. Now, sure, they'll make use and transact with the public blockchain when they need to. That's much more of a realistic future. And as far as I'm concerned, anything that makes this easier to happen has a high chance of success, in my opinion. If you think about the company and what they'll be doing, Lambden, they'll be using their token as a way of facilitating these interchain transactions. And therefore, that token will eventually be used a lot, and that will bring value to the token. And in terms of the business of generating and maintaining this suite of software applications that it will be used, another highly viable uh, set of products, in my opinion. For me, the final takeaway is this. This is a straightforward project conceived by a solid team, bright, talented developers who are creating something for developers. And if you think about it and, and actually look at the history of the blockchain from the very beginning, you got to understand this is a technology that is essentially an invention by programmers. Not only did they invent it, they actively control it. Uh, just to give an example, the, the recent and, and, and as you probably know, the future uh, splintering of Bitcoin with all these hard forks that we're going to be looking at here. These are all decisions. Granted, they're decisions made by a sort of team of people arguing with each other, but they're all decisions made by developers, by software developers. This impending change that we're going to be seeing between uh, in Ethereum, between proof of work to proof of stake probably, um, those are all decisions made by people who are maintaining that code. So this set of individuals and stakeholders who are developers, who are running this technology, that's not going to change. So from my standpoint, it's a good bet that if you believe in the future of this space, I happen to believe in it, despite all those things that we talked about earlier, is that if you're going to bet on something, number one, Find something that's going to seek to mitigate some of the obvious challenges of the technology. And two, places the tools in the hands of those that control the technology and that can make the widespread adoption of the technology actually happen. Okay, listeners, this is one of those rare weeks where I have a couple of minutes to add uh, some interesting reading for you to look at. Uh, go to Google and type in Tezos. Tezos SEC probe or Tezos class action lawsuit or any number of things that will give you some very interesting 
reading, and just to show you that no matter how successful some ICOs are, there's always ways to really screw them up. Another thing you can look at this week, interesting reading, is just type in segwit2x, and that's segregated witness 2x. And that's fascinating stuff that's coming up on the Bitcoin blockchain in the near future. Good reading. And so that's it this week already. That was quick uh, for uh, ICO41. And I wish you the best, and I'll talk to you next week.